want to thank you, gentlemen, for being here and for your service to our country. And um, the meeting is uh, called to order. I apologize for being a few minutes late. I forgot we changed the time till 9:45 from 10, so Ben could go to a meeting. I think that's occurring at 10:30. So um, thank you for accommodating both meetings. Um, obviously, uh, Afghanistan is. Uh, continues to be something that's important to our U.S. national interest. We brokered a, a government, uh, if you will, the United States did in 2014 that uh, created both a president and CEO office that has not been uh, confirmed, if you will, through the Oya Jirga and, and continued on. I think we had concerns about that process taking place. and. And, uh, you know, you wonder about the um, support that that government has relative to, uh, to not uh, being confirmed in the way that it normally would. Um, I have a tremendous respect for President Ghani and uh, a warm relationship with CEO Abdullah. Um, obviously, their roles together have been uh, interesting. They've sort of muddled through it together, as one might expect, uh, with the type of arrangements that have been, quote, created from the outside. Um, I was really glad to see uh, President Obama commit to uh, 8,400 troops going forward. I think the security situation there does not warrant changing that at this time. I would have liked for it to have occurred earlier, but it seems like that we've been able to continue to have the support of our allies in the region. I appreciate uh, certainly the uh, additional authorities that have been given to our military there. Um, to counter al-Qaeda and to work more closely with uh, the Afghan troops themselves. I think we know that the close air support has been very, very important to them and saving their lives and pushing back what's happening with uh, insurgencies there. We have a complicated future there, and I do want to hear from both of our outstanding witnesses today. Um, on one hand, we have uh, the Taliban there that, uh, that we're continuing to counter, appropriately so. And on the other hand, we've expressed uh, in the past our desire to negotiate a settlement with the Taliban, the very people we went to uh, Afghanistan in the first place in 01 to take out. Very complicated, complicated further by the fact that Pakistan continues to be an, uh, a tremendously duplicitous partner in this. Um, Mr. Olson and I have talked about this on several occasions, but, uh, you know, certainly they are... Uh, um, working against our interests there. They're the, the, through helping support in the ways that they do the Akani Network. They're the greatest threat to American uh, soldiers there, certainly the greatest threat to the Afghan military and civilians. So I look forward to our testimony. I do wish it was enhanced with someone from the military. Um, I uh, had a good meeting yesterday with uh, one of the generals involved in, in the transition issues. Uh, uh, I, I don't understand why the civilian side of the military continues to be uh, uh, in over their head, it seems, and their ability to cooperate in hearings that would be very beneficial to our witnesses, but they seem to be in over their head. So with that, I'll turn to, uh, to Senator Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, first, thanks for uh, convening this hearing on 15th anniversary of the international engagement in Afghanistan. I think it's appropriate that we take a look at where we are and where we're heading um, and evaluate how we can achieve our objectives. Um, this hearing, of course, is in the aftermath of the NATO Warsaw Summit, so we'll be able to at least get an update as to the commitments made there. 
and the upcoming Brussels conference, which will take place in October. Uh, Ambassador Olson, I want to share uh, Senator Corker, Chairman Corker's comments. The first issue of concern is security, and I take it the Department of Defense felt that you were fully capable responding to all of our questions on the security issues because they declined to have you have help at this hearing, which I join Senator Corker in expressing my regret. And that was the civilian side, we might add, yeah. uh, not right. the civilian leadership, not the military leadership. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, anyway, we will want to get an update on the security. It is um, uh, critically important. We know the Afghan special forces have been particularly effective, but it looks like they're stretched rather uh, thin throughout the country in dealing with the security needs, so we'd be interested as to how the conventional forces are capable of maintaining the security uh, in the different regions of Afghanistan. That's critically important. Uh, obviously, the peace process, what is happening? Is there, a, is there a possibility we can move forward? Pakistan's role, is it constructive in assisting us in the peace process in Afghanistan? Uh, look forward to uh, your update on the governance uh, structures within Afghanistan, uh, the status of the emerging democratic institutions. Senator Corker already mentioned uh, President Ghani and CEO Abdullah, the National Unity Government Agreement of 2014. We've seen signs, at least recently, that there has been some division here. Is, that, uh, is the unity still there? Is it still effectively... Uh, uh, operating as a unity government in Afghanistan. I am extremely interested in the protection of human rights. Uh, recent reports of child abuse by some of the Afghan National Security Forces, that is uh, absolutely unacceptable. And I want to make sure that our participation in Afghanistan, we have zero tolerance for that type of activity, and that is made clear through all of our participating arms. Which brings me to Mr. S Mr. Sampler. And uh, the work that USAID is doing in Afghanistan, our largest efforts uh, in the world, a great personal sacrifice to the men and women who are carrying out that aid, some who've given their lives. So I really first express my uh, deep appreciation to the uh, workforce at USAID and the leaders there. And I, Mr. Sampler, I understand that this may be one of your last days at USAID that you are Moving on, and I just really want to thank you for your service to our country, both of you for your service uh, to our country. Uh, lastly, uh, we, we, we need to take a look at the aid program as to how it's being administered. It's a, uh, considering the size of the Afghan economy, is it being right-sized? Do we need to make sure that it is working effectively and carrying out lasting reform? It's time for us to evaluate uh, that aid package as well. So, Mr. Chairman, this is a very important hearing. As you pointed out, I regret that I will be leaving for part of the hearing. Uh, we have the counselor of uh, Burma that's in town. You had a chance, Mr. Chairman, to meet with her yesterday at breakfast. Uh, I have an uh, opportunity to, to meet with her in a few moments, and I'm going to take advantage of that. Well, very good. Um, we uh, appreciate those comments, and obviously you, can, you will be the first questioner, so you make sure that uh, you have time to do what you need to do. Our first witness is Ambassador Richard Olson, the United States Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan. I think. You may be leaving soon, too, is that correct? Um, I will be uh, departing before the end of the year, sir. Yeah. We yeah. thank you also. Both of you are leaving very soon for distinguished careers uh, in helping ensure that our national interests are pursued, and we thank you for being here today. Our second witness is Mr. Donald L. Sampler, the uh, junior, 
the assistant to the administrator for Pakistan and Afghanistan at USAID. We appreciate you both being here. I think you know you can summarize your comments, if you will, in about five minutes. Without objection, uh, your written testimony may made part of the record. And again, we thank you both for being here. And if you would just uh, speak in the order introduced, that would be great. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, uh, thank you for inviting me to update you on U.S. engagement in Afghanistan and the region. Uh, in light of many years working together, I would express my sincere appreciation and gratitude to the members and staff of the committee uh, for your continued support of one of our highest priority um, uh, foreign policy agendas. Uh, 2016 has been a significant year for Afghanistan and progress has been made, but important work lays ahead as we will discuss today. My written testimony, which has been submitted for the record, touches on many topics that I expect we will discuss, including prospects for peace and reconciliation and regional dynamics. Our partnership with Afghanistan remains strong. The government of Afghanistan continues to be an important ally in the fight against terrorism and Kabul works with us to eliminate the remnants of Al-Qaeda and its affiliates and disrupt and degrade the rise of Islamic State. To strengthen Afghanistan's capabilities as a partner and to improve the lives of the Afghan people, we continue to invest U.S. resources to strengthen Afghanistan's security forces, to improve governance, build institutions, and strengthen the economy. The Afghan government has made headway on launching and implementing reforms using these instruments. We are nearing the two-year mark of the political partnership between President Ghani and Chief Executive Abdullah, brokered in 2014. Despite the challenges inherent to coalition government, we believe the unity government provides the most viable path towards stability and prosperity in Afghanistan. President Ghani and Chief Executive Officer Abdullah remain resolutely focused on achieving a more stable, secure, and prosperous Afghanistan. Political stability is directly linked to a positive security environment. Afghan security forces have incorporated lessons learned from the previous fighting seasons into their current operations with improving results. The Afghan security forces are performing better this year. The fighting has not been easy and there has been an increase of casualties, uh, but the Taliban have not been able to capture or hold strategically significant locations for any extended periods of time. Afghanistan continues to engender strong international support. We cannot overemphasize how critical this support is for Afghan security and development. Afghanistan will continue to need international support to consolidate the gains of the past 15 years. President Obama's July troop extension announcement was welcomed by our allies and partners. At the, at the Warsaw NATO summit in July, allies and partners agreed to extend the resolute support mission and pledged support to the Afghan security forces for another three years, totaling approximately $1 billion per year until 2020. The October 4th and 5th Brussels Conference on Afghanistan, co-hosted by the European Union and Afghanistan, will solidify international support for Afghanistan's development and government reform plans for the years ahead. Ahead of Brussels, Afghanistan is showing tangible reform progress that remains critical for donor confidence. While international support for Afghanistan remains strong, the regional picture remains complex. A constructive relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan remains essential to bringing peace and stability to the region. Following significant improvement after the election of President Ghani, relations between Afghanistan and Pakistan have peaked and troughed, tested by terrorism, refugees, and border management. 
On counterterrorism, Pakistan has made progress in shutting down terrorist safe havens in the federally administered tribal areas and worked with us to designate, decimate core al-Qaeda. Pakistan faces a serious threat from terrorists who continue to target its schools, hospitals, and places of worship. While Pakistan's progress is laudable, its struggle with terrorism will not come to an end until it decisively shifts away from tolerating externally focused groups. U.S. officials have been very clear that Pakistan must target all militant groups without discrimination, including those that target Pakistan's neighbors, and shut down all safe havens in its territory. In this regard, we welcome General Raheel Sharif's statement on July 6th, in which he directed Pakistani military commanders, intelligence agencies, and law enforcement officials to take concrete measures to deny any militant safe haven groups, safe haven or use of Pakistani soil to launch terrorist attacks in Afghanistan. While significant obstacles lay ahead from corruption to ministerial administration and the need for further and economic and political stability, Afghanistan continues to be an invaluable partner for the United States in the heart of Asia. Thank you for the opportunity to address the committee today and I look forward to our discussion and your questions. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Mr. Sanko. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, Senators, friends and colleagues, it's an honor to be able to testify before you today about the work of USAID in Afghanistan. Today is, in fact, my last full day as Assistant Administrator, so I'll use my oral remarks of this, probably my last testimony, to reflect on my 14 years of almost continuous service in or on the reconstruction in Afghanistan. Within weeks of the horrific attacks of September 11th in 2001, the U.S. and our allies had begun military action in Afghanistan. Supported by teams from my own former unit, the 5th Special Forces Group, forces loyal to the Northern Alliance quickly defeated the Taliban. The Bonn Agreement established a path to governance for a new Afghanistan, and it established the International Security Force. And the U.S. Embassy was reopened with Ambassador Ryan Crocker as charge. I first arrived in Afghanistan early in 2002 to assess the capacity of the nascent Afghan government for conducting the emergency loyajurga that was required by the Bonn Agreement. My assessment was, as you might imagine, not particularly optimistic. While Bond had mandated that there be an interim government in Afghanistan, the capacity to build that government was basically non-existent at the time. That's an important first point I'd like to share as I reminisce. What we call the reconstruction of Afghanistan is something of a misnomer. The Soviet occupation, followed by decades of brutal civil war and privation, had robbed Afghanistan of any sense of what governance was or could be. The physical, emotional, intellectual, and human infrastructure of the country of Afghanistan was devastated over the course of 30 years, to the point that we were not reconstructing Afghanistan, we were helping the Afghans construct a new state from scratch. So perhaps our initial estimates of the problems, the requisite solutions, and the prospects for rapid, meaningful social changes were too optimistic. Yet, during the past 15 years, I have seen Afghanistan make remarkable gains. Thanks to the efforts of the United States, our international partners, the Afghan government, and the Afghan people. The key elements of USAID's Afghanistan strategy remain to make durable gains made in health, education, and opportunities for women, to maintain a focus on economic growth and fiscal sustainability, and to support a transparent, effective government in Afghanistan that is responsive to the needs of its citizens. These efforts in these regards all contribute to our own national interest of combating terrorism and stabilizing the region. Senators, when I first arrived in Kabul in 2002, 
I found a city with virtually no infrastructure, but with fantastic hopes and aspirations. I found a population with very little capacity, but with a great passion and an energy to learn. And I found a country with a very bleak, divisive, and painful past that was hoping for a brighter future and looking to the United States for support in that regard. I'm proud of what we've accomplished in Afghanistan over 14 years with the support of the United States Congress and the American people. Today in Afghanistan, mothers and children are much less likely to die immediately or uh, during or immediately after childbirth. More Afghans have access to health care, education, electricity, healthy food, clean water, cell phone service, and even the internet in their rural local communities. Afghan farmers today are being trained and equipped with modern farming techniques that increase both the quality and the yield of their farms to the point that the Afghan Minister of Agriculture, Irrigation, and Livestock hopes that Afghanistan can perhaps be food self-sufficient in five years. And the Afghan education system from primary school through university is producing young Afghan women and men who are capable of contributing to their country, to their society, and to their economy in ways that were not imaginable in 2002. We've accomplished much over 15 years of which we can collectively be proud. But we have much to learn from the experiences and failures along the way, and we must learn those lessons because we still have much more to accomplish with our Afghan colleagues in their decade of transformation. Mr. Chairman, let me conclude my remarks by recognizing the people who've made our progress in Afghanistan possible. The men and women of our military, our allies, and the Afghan National Security Forces, the thousands of civilians working with and for USAID, many of whom, I might add, had never experienced the kind of environments they would face in Afghanistan. The remarkable staff at USAID, and specifically the staff in the Office of Afghanistan and Pakistan Affairs and at our mission in Kabul. While I have the privilege of addressing you today, the accomplishments about which I will boast are the fruits of their labor and of their Afghan colleagues. And finally, I have to thank Ms. Barbara Smith, a dedicated and well-respected development professional who throughout my work in and on Afghanistan has been my counselor, confessor, intellectual sparring partner, and frequently my critic, but most importantly, my wife. Her support has made my tenure in this position possible, and her companionship has made it enjoyable. Finally, Mr. Chairman, as I prepare to leave government, I'm pleased to introduce, to introduce Mr. Bill Hammock. He will be sworn in tomorrow as the new Assistant Administrator for Afghanistan and Pakistan Affairs. He has served as a mission director in several countries around the world. He served for three years with me in Afghanistan as the mission director in that country. And he has served in senior positions here in Washington, so he knows the lay of the land here as well. I'm confident Bill is the right person for this job, and I'm confident he will continue to lead USAID's efforts in Afghanistan in ways that make us and you proud. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you, and uh, we're certainly fortunate that uh, both of you are here today, and, and uh, we certainly deeply appreciate Ambassador Olson's service to our country. I will say that for someone who's been involved in Afghanistan for 14 years and has committed to it in the way that you have, um, we're especially fortunate to have you here today. I hope you'll write a book, I really do, um, seriously to help us think about engagements like this uh, more fully in the future. It's, uh, I'm sure the knowledge that you have, the experiences that you've gained are invaluable and uh, while I had planned to focus on Afghanistan's other issues today, I look forward to, to seeking some of that advice today. But thank you so much for being here. Bill, I assume, is a gentleman sitting right behind you, nodding his head. Uh, we welcome you. And uh, with that, I'll turn to Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I join you in, in uh, thanking both of our witnesses for their public service. An, an extraordinarily 
challenging surroundings. Uh, I cannot imagine what you saw 15 years ago. And uh, we're all very um, concerned about what the light is at the end of this tunnel and how long it's going to take in order to reach that and how much more of our military and civilian uh, efforts are going to be needed before the country is self-sufficient. And uh, I hope we'll get into those types of questions during this hearing. But let me just focus on one or two issues uh, that I, I want to make sure we get we follow up on. Ambassador Olson, the last time uh, we had a hearing, we, I talked about the pervasive problems of corruption. You acknowledged that's a serious problem within Afghanistan and indicated that the mutual accountability framework could be used to have greater accountability in this area. Can you just update us as to what uh, will be done, perhaps in Brussels, uh, to make sure that we stay focused on achievable results in fighting corruption in Afghanistan? Um, thank you, Senator. Um, corruption does um, indeed continue to be um, an enormous challenge uh, for Afghanistan, but I can tell you that the government of Afghanistan, starting with President Ghani, uh, takes this uh, challenge uh, very seriously. Um, first of all, let me say that um, our uh, assistance to um, Afghanistan uh, is commissioned, uh, is conditioned, um, in particular the uh, security assistance uh, provided uh, through uh, defense channels, um, through uh, the uh, Combined Security Transition Command Afghanistan, uh, includes specific uh, measures to root out um, corruption and prevent uh, corruption of uh, contracting authorities such as uh, fuel. Um, USAID, and I'm sure uh, my colleague Larry can talk quite about, about this, um, sponsors extensive anti-corruption uh, components. Um, on the political side of the House, um, the recent appointment of the Attorney General, uh, Mr. Hamadi, who has um, an excellent reputation um, in this area, uh, is working to promote uh, the rule of law and to take specific anti-corruption um, measures. Um, uh, he, uh, in June of 2016, and with the support of the U.S. government, uh, he administered uh, applications for 25 vacancies to ensure that government positions are filled on merit. That's one small example. Um, the Afghan government's anti-corruption efforts have been backed by uh, actions. Uh, there was, has, uh, President Ghani has established a high council for the rule of law and anti-corruption, which met for the first time in August. Uh, he announced the uh, establishment of an anti-corruption justice center to... Uh, those, those com that's good. I mean, all those yep. areas are good. There's been little activity by the anti-corruption justice center to date. Um, and uh, I would just urge you in, that we, the United States in our capacity, continue to keep a very bright s spotlight on these issues. And I would personally ask to keep this committee informed as the progress made, not just on corruption and fighting corruption, but also on advancing the human rights issues. And we'll, I'm sure during the course of this hearing, if not, we'll make sure it's available to you, our specific concerns. Um, yes, I think those steps are good. But to date, we haven't seen enough evidence that it really is taking root. So um, we need to continue to make a major spotlight on it. I have one more just administrative question. The special, you know, we have special bureaus for Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
Is it likely that that structure will continue uh, indefinitely, or is there plans to integrate it into the normal bureaus at both state and USAID? Um, well, the, uh, for the State Department, uh, the Office of the Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan uh, will be uh, continuing for the, the, the time being. Um, I think um, uh, Secretary Kerry and uh, the leadership of the State Department will be uh, making decisions about how uh, this is presented to uh, the incoming administration, the transition teams, uh, but for the time being, we continue to have the Special Representative's office. Uh, Mr. Sampler, you, you said that you have learned lessons over the last 14 years. I alluded to what is, the, what is the light at the end of the tunnel, and how much longer will it be before we can start to significantly turn over the responsibilities uh, to the Afghan people? Uh, Senator, I, with respect to the light at the end of the tunnel, I, I would argue that there are literally millions of Afghans who, who see that light already and enjoy the benefits of the intervention that we made 15 years ago. When we talk about the Taliban and when we talk about the conflict in Afghanistan, it's important to remember that well less than 5% of the population of Afghanistan is under the rule of the Taliban. Now, that number fluctuates as the, as the combat rolls around. But the vast majority of the Afghan people are living a much better life than they could ever have envisioned in 2002. I, I take your point that that wasn't really what you were looking for. But in terms of the future of Afghanistan, one of the points that I like to make after doing this for 15 years is we're there. We need to continue to support Afghanistan. We need to make sure that these changes for women and girls and for young entrepreneurs are not rolled back. But the opportunities that we, with your support in 2002, begin to create in Afghanistan are reaching fruition now. And I'd like to address a little bit of your corruption as I answer that, your corruption question. You know, Ambassador Olson talked about some of the grand schemes and the strategic level things we're doing. Um, the U.S. government is supporting, is supporting something called the Joint Interagency Monitoring and Evaluation Commission uh, for Fighting Corruption in Afghanistan, the, the MEC. And the MEC has reached agreement with six different ministries to do internal audits, and this is all on their own doing, to do internal audits of those ministries looking for signs of corruption or vulnerabilities to corruption, and then working with those ministries to address them. They've done this already with the Ministry of Public Health. I think it, it probably alarmed the minister that he was going to show all his dirty laundry in one of these open hearings. It was done at President Ghani's insistence, and it's been very productive. Likewise, we, we have mechanisms in place to protect government of Afghanistan programs we're supporting and to protect U.S. tax dollars. So the corruption that you mentioned is endemic in Afghanistan, and to be honest, it's endemic in most of the countries that USAID works in around the world. But we are configured to help prevent it, and we are in this for the long haul to help the Afghans combat it and ultimately defeat it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm just going to ask one question. I want to make some interjections. I, I'll make the observation that uh, Ambassador Holbrook's vision of the relationship between Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, at the time, while, you know, certainly was the best we could make at the time, is different than we thought. And so I do think it's worthy of looking at this relationship and having a Pakistan-Afghanistan official because there's a lot of conflict there, and I'd love to have your counsel off record as to whether that's still something that makes sense or actually beats, breeds distrust by both countries because of having this singular role. So I, I think that's worth uh, discussing. Uh, Larry Sampler, I, I, I'll say that, uh, uh, first of all, how much are we annually expending the United States government uh, on Afghanistan today? 
Senator Lemmy, in a broad sense, we've spent $21 billion on But this year, how much will we expand? Our, you, you have appropriated to us right out a billion dollars this year. No, 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 no. How much we spent? No, how much we spend each year in support. I'm not talking about through USAID, the U.S. government in general, support of the military, support of the security, their military, their security, yeah. and our certainly. Senator, Ambassador I, Olson, I, I, I don't know the answer to that because I don't know what the military spends. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about even our own military. I'm talking about in support of their military. And Olson, you want to answer that? Yeah, I mean, uh, in, in broad terms, sir, the figure is about $5 billion a year. I mean, we pay about $4 billion a year in support of the um, Afghan National Defense and Security Forces yeah. and roughly uh, a billion um, in terms of civilian assistance. And that doesn't include, of course, what we're spending on the troops that we have on the ground there. I, I, just, I think the numbers are not close to $10 billion a year, but I'd love to be corrected. My, my question in, in getting to that, I, I didn't think it would take that long, but is to, to ask someone who's been invested uh, in the way that you are, who has seen uh, his brothers and sisters uh, killed, maimed, uh, back here in many disabled positions, um, as a person, again, who sees the future there, but uh, since you'll not have this opportunity likely again, um, we're going to spend this kind of money ad infinitum. I mean, 95 percent of Afghanistan's budget structure comes from donors, okay? The, you know, we know this is going to go on ad infinitum. I mean, uh, you know, there's no end to this in sight. And I would just love for you to share with us, um, you did speak about uh, some of the things that have transpired within the country, but as our citizens look at our national interest and they weigh 10 billion a year ad infinitum, they weigh the, the uh, what's happened to military personnel and others who are so committed, the people like you who've done what they're, they've done, how would you express the value of this to American citizens uh, uh, since you're right there on the ground as they look at these types of incursions and, and how it affects our national interest? Senator, thank you for, the, for, for a very broad question. I appreciate the opportunity to, to respond, and I, I will yield to Rick as well part of the remaining time if, you, if you'll permit. My response is this. The Human Development Index, which development professionals around the world use to rack and stack countries and where they stand in terms of human development needs, um, Afghanistan is 171st out of about 185 countries. So that puts them somewhere in the middle of the countries that we work in in Africa, where our expenditures are nowhere near the $5 billion mark, but they're very serious expenditures. So I can make an argument as a development professional or as just a humane person that we are investing in Afghanistan to improve the quality of life for Afghanistan in, in ways that they desperately need. Now, overlaying that with our national security interests, um, coming from a military background and a military background very much focused on countering insurgency, ungoverned spaces are the worst possible thing that we could allow to reemerge. So supporting the government of Afghanistan and their ability to govern their own space and to do that proactively to prevent insurgencies rather than having to counter them is, in my opinion, a good investment. It is expensive to work in Afghanistan. It's a long ways away. The roads are terrible. The airports are not terribly good. It costs a lot of money. And every time I go home to Stone Mountain, Georgia, I have to explain to my 83-year-old father why this is more important than fixing the bridge out back in Senator Isaacs, and I apologize, but fixing the bridge out back in Georgia. You know, how we spend this money in Afghanistan does make a difference, and it makes a difference in my home state of Georgia as well.
Thank you very much, Senator Brasso. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I, I share uh, your concerns. I consider concerns that uh, Senator Cardin expressed with regard to corruption. And uh, I think you made a comment about writing a book. A book came out yesterday, and the book was called Corruption in Conflict. This is the uh, Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. And when you think about who this inspector general is, and I ask unanimous can this be included in the record? Absolutely. And I know if a book has been written or an article published, you have read it. So uh, <laughs> thank you. You know, what I hadn't realized that it says, unlike other inspector generals, Congress created this inspe special inspector general for Afghanistan reconstruction as an independent agency, not housed inside any single department, and it is thus able to provide independent and objective oversight. And if you go through that, as they have reported in today's Financial Times, today's Financial Times headline, Afghan corruption worse after U.S. aid effort, says watchdog. So when we talk about fixing a bridge in Georgia versus what's happened uh, in, in Afghanistan, underneath it says, countless examples uncovered of funds going to waste and malpractice. It says, it is, it is this endemic corruption that poses an existential threat to Afghanistan and to U.S. policy objectives. So, Mr. Chairman, I want to just ask some questions based on what we see here to have you comment on some of the things that are in the report that has just come out from the Special Inspector General. Uh, so, the Inspector General uh, concludes, and so I ask, do you agree, quote, corruption undermined the U.S. mission in Afghanistan by fueling grievances against the Afghan government and channeling material support to the insurgency, because we're talking about political objectives here, security objectives, trying to work with reconciliation with the Taliban. So that's their quote, corruption undermined the U.S. mission in Afghanistan. Um, so you can, either one of you. Yeah. Um, thank you, Senator. I think, first of all, we appreciate the work that SIGAR uh, that has done, um, and we thank them for uh, approaching um, you know, the 15-year history with a lessons learned approach on corruption. And I don't think anyone would doubt that corruption um, is a huge challenge in Afghanistan. I mean, President Ghani has himself acknowledged it as one of the foremost challenges. Um, I, would, I would just say that we agree with the analytical assessment that corruption under, undermines uh, governance um, and can, in certain cases, uh, even help to fuel uh, the insurgency. What I would say is that with uh, the Ghani government, um, we have uh, a committed partner on anti-corruption, and President Ghani has taken a number of steps. He uh, took action to uh, seek to finally clean up the Kabul bank scandal, which was uh, such a dramatic example of uh, corruption um, and malfeasance. Uh, last year, he canceled a huge fuel contract because of allegations of, um, uh, uh, of impropriety. Um, and as my colleague Larry mentioned, um, he has set up uh, the Monitoring and Evaluation Committee, MEC, with outside experts, leading outside experts on um, anti-corruption who have come in to work on this. So I, I think anyone would have to admit that this is a work in progress. Um, but I think it is a dramatically different situation from what it was prior to 2014. Well, Mr. Uh, Mr. Chamber, I'll go to you with the next quote from the report and ask you to comment on that. The United States contributed to the growth of corruption 
by injecting tens of billions of dollars into the Afghan economy, using flawed oversight and contracting practices, and partnering with malign power brokers. I mean, that's from the report. So I just ask you if you'd want to comment on that and your thoughts, because of your long history, of you've been to Afghanistan 60 times over the last 15 years. I mean, it's a remarkable commitment and service to the country. Uh, this is a concerning report. Yeah, in, in general, I've, I've gone on the record and under oath multiple times saying how much I appreciate the value of GAO inspectors general and the special inspector general. What I will say about this report is I don't find it particularly helpful to be reminded that corruption is a problem. USAID identified corruption in Afghanistan in 2004. We did a fairly grand assessment of corruption in Afghanistan then, and it's been a part of our onward planning ever since. I do very much appreciate um, every opportunity to bring attention to corruption in Afghanistan because that's my remit, but USAID deals with problems very similar to this all over the world. To your question about uh, we created corruption by the infusion of money, you know, one of the things from uh, Mr. Sopko's remarks yesterday likened corruption to cancer. And I think that's a good analogy because once it's in the system, it's really hard to remove. You have to catch it early because the remedies to eliminating cancer are incredibly painful and in some cases are more debilitating than the cancer itself. For example, refusing to work with malign actors. Now, defining individuals as malign actors is its own problem that Ambassador Olson will deal with. But who you choose to deal with and not deal with creates enemies within the state and enemies to the state that in some cases are as much a threat as the cancer. So Ambassador Mike McKinley, who is doing a fantastic job, must balance the support to the government of Afghanistan as they work to eradicate this cancer of corruption in the country with the political requirements to be as inclusive as he can to make sure that he's able to bring stability to his country. I tell my staff all the time, if this were easy, the Boy Scouts would have done it 10 years ago. This continues to be something we wrestle with, but USAID does this well around the world and will continue to focus on it in Afghanistan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time's expired. I, uh, it's an interesting observation you make. I, I, the, the conflict that existed uh, from the very beginning with uh, President Karzai publicly alluding to the alleged suitcases of cash that were delivered to him by our intelligence agencies. Um, from day one and continued throughout his administration according to him in public reports. These are alleged statements. But it fuels the very thing that uh, Senator Brasso is alluding to and certainly undermines when people are so aware of it when you have a president of a country publicly stating that we are delivering suitcases of cash. Um, it really undermines uh, our situation. I understand the, the conflict that you're alluding to. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for your service. Um, I want to continue on uh, in Senator Barrasso's reference to the report. And I understand that some of these things are hard, but uh, even Boy Scouts, especially when they're in Eagle style, can get some things done. Uh, and so uh, let me move on to some of the other major points that were, it says that we were slow the U.S. government slow to recognize the magnitude of the problem, the role of corrupt patronage networks, the way it threatened core U.S. goals, that even when the United States acknowledged corruption as a strategic threat, security and political, political goals consistently trumped anti-corruption actions. Uh, and when the United States sought to combat corruption, its efforts only saw limited success in the absence of sustained Afghan and U.S. political commitment. 
So as someone who has been very supportive of our efforts here and, and its resources, this undermines my sense of commitment uh, because you say, Mr. Sampler, that we recognized it in 2004, that's 12 years ago. So more than a decade later, I don't see a lot of uh, greater success in this regard. Um, that's why working with Chairman Corker, uh, I authored legislation that the Senate passed in April to address many of these concerns that laid out this in a number of other quarterly reports as mandated by Congress. Almost all have indicated that without addressing core governance issues, our efforts there will be, will be uh, a failure. And at its core, the Afghan, Afghanistan Accountability Act lays out a framework for the United States to take meaningful steps, to work with our Afghan interlocutors to tackle the roots of corruption, to develop a clear accountability benchmarks supporting the Afghan legal system to better oversee property rights and asset management, and in certain cases, imposing specific penalties on persons who are knowingly involved in direct acts of mismanaging or misappropriating U.S. assistance. Unfortunately, the House has not taken up this legislation uh, yet, but however, the essence of trying to establish sound metrics uh, when we are talking about billions of dollars of the U.S. taxpayers' commitment uh, to Afghanistan is, doesn't really, shouldn't need uh, an act of Congress at the end of the day, although certainly we'll continue to push for that. So my questions are in this regard, I don't get a sense that we have made progress in institutionalizing any of these commitments. Um, we seem to have tried the capacity approach for the past 15 years. So it seems to me that while I've always heard we need to build capacity and accountability, I think it's time to look more seriously to the accountability side of this question. Um, and so my question to you is, are we making progress? And, and don't give me a generic answer. Give me specifics of institutionalizing uh, these commitments. How can we effectively hold those officials who uh, engage in these practices accountable? And what's the threshold for taking real steps to improve good governance and develop uh, anti-corruption efforts. Senator, thank you for your question and for the attention that your legislation draws to this very thorny, very complicated issue of corruption. Um, I should note, when I mentioned that in 2004 we did a study of the, of the state of corruption in Afghanistan the, and discovered that corruption was in fact endemic, there were no institutions in place to fight it. They had had their emergency way jerga, they had had a constitutional way jerga, they had not yet, I believe, at that time, even had their first presidential election. So the institutions being built in Afghanistan are nascent institutions even now. I frequently, when I speak publicly, talk about the state of play in the United States when our nation was 14 years old. Um, we had not, of course, even dreamed of giving women the right to vote. We, you know, we had serious problems ourselves with collecting revenue, with managing our debt. In Afghanistan, specifically, things that have been done. Um, I am very pleased with the work of the MEC. I mentioned it previously. Five ministries have signed up in an agreement with this monitoring and evaluation committee that they will examine their own ministries and they will publicly air what's found in those examinations and they will publicly address what they need to do to correct it. Second example, the public utility, the Afghan equivalent of a Georgia Power or a Duke Power Company, 
When we were working with them to provide resources to help them build their electric grid, we identified, I believe the number was 56, very specific vulnerabilities to corruption in the utility structure. Now again, this utility was created in 2009 basically from scratch. Its first two years it requires significant federal subsidies from the government of Afghanistan. It's now in the black in generating revenue that it reinvests. They addressed all 56 or whatever the specific number was of the vulnerabilities that we identified in a way that satisfied us, so we began giving them money. That's an important point. We incentivize our investment in Afghan institutions by requiring them to make the, the necessary adjustments to meet Western standards. Final point that I'll make, Afghans are very upset with corruption. The Afghan public is very upset. The uh, Asia Foundation survey every year raises the issue of corruption. And the way that I respond when I talk to Afghans is there are two elements to fighting corruption. And a third observation, for the observation, it's going to take a decade. You can't turn corruption around overnight. The first requirement is strong institutions. President Ghani, as the ambassador has alluded, is building those institutions. And the second is political will. And the one thing that I think we have in spades now that we did not necessarily have before is political will not just at the president's level, but among the young technocratic ministers and deputy ministers and office directors that he's appointed. These are Afghans who do not want to tolerate corruption, but they need our help in rooting it out and preventing it. Well, unless we see substantive, actual improvement, I mean, the mech sounds like it's self-policing. Uh, and, you know, if they're true to their commitment, self-policing, I guess, can be uh, can result, uh, can create a positive result, but I'm not sure. I, the point is that I don't know what the political will here in the United States will be to continue to support the Afghans in light of what is going on there with all this now. So we're, we're well into, you know, over a decade of this type of commitment. It takes another decade. I just don't know what the political will will be here at the end of the day. So the sooner they accelerate uh, their actual actions, it doesn't have to be that they're going to be pure overnight, but that they're tangible and demonstrable and can be measured, then the better the political will will be here. Otherwise, persons like myself who have been supportive will, will have a totally different view. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your comments, and I do hope that uh, President Ghani's efforts every Saturday morning to himself sit down and, you know, <laughs> micromanage the contract letting that's taking place. I hope they'll bear fruit. I think that Senator Menendez's point is right. I do know that Ghani is, is in a whole different place. You would think some low-level bureaucrat would be doing it, but he's doing it himself, and I hope, that, uh, I hope that'll bear fruit. With that, Senator Isaacson, who seems to always have, or seems many times to have distinguished Georgians who are presenting, but uh, thank you for being here. We're very proud of the contribution all Georgians make, particularly Mr. Sampler. We thank you very much for your service to the country, and particularly the 15 years working in Afghanistan. It's a real tribute to you and a tribute to the country. Are you going to be retiring to Georgia? Sir, I can only wish. I, I um, will be taking a position somewhere else in the country. Well, if it ends up in Georgia, we'd love to have you registered to vote by October the 8th. <laughs> <laughs> Be assured that you have my dad's vote. He will <laughs> Tell him anything we can do to help him, let us know. You, you made a comment uh, at, early on in your testimony, answering a question, I think, of Senator Corker, that we are there talking about the work of USAID and what we've been doing in trying to get girls in school, change some of the things that need to be changed on the ground in Afghanistan. And if we are there in that definition, with the exception of some areas that are controlled, I know, in a minority way by the Taliban and others, 
Is it going to take the $5 billion that Mr. Olson referred to that we're investing into the Afghan military and the Afghan government every year for us to stay there in your definition of being there? Senator, thank you for letting me clarify. I don't want to communicate in any way that we've finished our work in Afghanistan. As I indicated, they are still 171st out of 183 or 185 countries on the Human Development Index. By being there, what I mean is Afghans have seen the light at the end of the tunnel, and there are Afghans who live a much better life than they did before. The, the fact that we've been able to reduce, for example, maternal mortality by over 50% is a fantastic statistic in aid circles. But that 50% is still an incredibly large number, the, the remaining problems with maternal mortality. The number of midwives that we've provided to allow women to have safe births, or at least accompanied births, which they didn't have before, is a remarkable accomplishment. And Afghan women would say this is tremendous, but it isn't yet a standard that we should be satisfied with. I, I can't comment on what the cost will be in the years going forward. I think in Afghanistan, everything is tied to reconciliation and to the resolution of the ongoing conflict. But I do think that as a development professional and as my work in the past years on planning for the future, I would see USAID being engaged in Afghanistan in a meaningful way for a number of years, as long as we enjoy the support of the U.S. Congress and the U.S. people. On that point, one of the things that I was hoping I could point to, and you kind of led me to that point, hope your successor, who I think is behind you, is that correct? And we wish your successor the very best of luck in his endeavors. One of the things we need is for you all to be looking to the future in terms of answering that question of what is it going to take from us to support what you have done so far and to sustain it in the country of Afghanistan. We learned in Iraq with provincial reconstruction teams, soft power, use of the United States military, a tremendous investment. We brought Iraq to peace. They wrote a constitution. They voted three times. And then we left and the support mechanism left and Iraq became a headquarters for ISIL. We don't want the same thing to happen in Afghanistan. So knowing what roadmap it's going to take with honest assessment to keep what with the success you've made and build on it is going to be important for us to know. And I hope your successor will work with us, giving us some idea of what that really will be. Mr. Olson, the, I believe the, the ISIL affiliate in Afghanistan is called ISKIP, I-S-K-P, is that correct? Sir. What is yes. their strength in Afghanistan? We believe that they are, uh, uh, have a few thousand uh, fighters, uh, 1,500 to 2,500, mostly concentrated in uh, Nangarhar province um, in the east. Um, they are uh, actively being fought against by the government of Afghanistan, and of course um, our uh, own forces are carrying out um, airstrikes uh, against them. Are they coordinated in any way with, with uh, the Taliban? Uh, uh, no, sir. In fact, uh, the Taliban and Daesh have been fighting each other, um, at least in, uh, in Nangarhar province. Um, uh, they have not, uh, to the best of our knowledge, joined forces. They oppose each other. Do we know what their state, do they have a stated goal, Daesh? Do they have a stated goal? Do they want to just disrupt Afghanistan, or do they have a goal they want to take Afghanistan over? Well, <clears throat> I think one of the differences between the Taliban and Daesh is that, um, Daesh has, in fact, a global agenda, uh, uh, the advancement of the caliphate. Um, and uh, the Taliban traditionally has focused its objectives purely on um, Afghanistan uh, and uh, has not had extraterritorial uh, ambitions. Um, I do think it, it's important to note that, um, that Daesh in Afghanistan is largely uh, and a 
the result of um, uh, TTP, that is to say Pakistani Taliban uh, people who were pushed out of North Waziristan uh, with the successful operations the Pakistanis have conducted in North Waziristan, uh, they uh, went to the other side of the border and many of them have sworn allegiance to, to Daesh. Uh, and uh, that is in many ways the basis of the, um, uh, the organization in, in Afghanistan. Thank you for your answer, and thanks to both of you for your service to the country. If I could interject, is it still the stated uh, goal of the administration and, and of Ghani himself to solve the internal differences that exist there through an inclusion, a negotiated inclusion of the Taliban in the government? Um, Senator, yes, we, we do believe that um, ultimately um, the uh, peace of Afghanistan will require a political settlement. Um, and I think the way I look at it is there is a very long-standing conflict in Afghanistan. It's been going for 40 years. Um, and it has changed, you know, the sides have changed uh, considerably over those, those decades. Uh, but at the core, there is an internal conflict about the, the, the future of Afghanistan that is going to have to be resolved by Afghans talking to Afghans. That's not to suggest there isn't an external element. There certainly is, and I would, I would readily concede that. Um, but our belief is that it will be necessary to um, uh, bring about a political settlement, to have the Taliban come to the table, and this is why we have repeatedly called for uh, both unilaterally but also through various multilateral mechanisms for the Taliban to come to the table. Um, unfortunately, they have so far not been prepared to do that. Uh, this was an important factor um, in the President's decision to take the action that he did against um, uh, Mullah Mansour um, earlier in the, uh, uh, in the summer. Uh, so we continue to believe that that will be um, the way forward, and that is the belief of President Ghani as well. I look forward to following that up on the second round. I, I will say that while I abhor uh, Pakistan's um, activities and, and find their duplicity hard to take, and I, my sense is you're going to see a lessening degree of support for Pakistan over time as a result, um, in many ways because they know that uh, our end goal is to negotiate with the Taliban. That feeds some of the duplicity they're carrying out too because they're hedging their bets. But uh, with that, Senator, you know. Thank you, uh, Chairman Corker, and thank you both for your, your uh, service and what is an awful uh, difficult um, situation there in Afghanistan. Um, Mr. Uh, Sampler, you, you use the, uh, the metaphor that corruption is like a cancer. Uh, and as you know, um, you know, when we tackle a cancer, we, we have to do it uh, very quickly or the cancer wins. And, and I just, uh, I'm a little bit disturbed when we talk in terms of uh, 10 years and long periods of time in terms of getting uh, hold of corruption and, and really knocking it out. Um, and one of the areas that it seems to me that the, the most, um, is the most effective is removing people from office, prosecuting officials, uh, letting people know there's a deterrent, uh, a really strong deterrent. Can you tell us how many uh, people have been removed from office, how many uh, people have been prosecuted? Is there a strong 
prosecutorial agency? Are they reviewing cases? Uh, you know, we've had a number of years, as you've pointed out, we've known the corruption is there, but uh, what, uh, uh, what is actually happening on the ground in terms of acting upon the individuals? As the chairman talked about, uh, uh, suitcases of cash and all of those kinds of things. If that's happening, uh, something ought to be done about it in, in terms of the institutions there. Yeah, Senator, thank you for the question and, and the observation. I, I, I have learned in my last hearing, I will not ever in hearings again use metaphors because they can get out of your control quickly. <laughs> um, you know, the, your point about catching corruption early is correct. And I would argue, especially at the higher levels of government, um, you know, leadership leads by example. And if there are in the higher echelons of government corrupt officials, that breeds corruption and it trains younger officials to be corrupt in their own right when it becomes their turn. One of the things that President Ghani has done quickly in his term of office is he has seized the reins of corruption at the senior levels to the best that he can, recognizing, as I alluded to earlier, that he has challenges with respect to inclusive governance and, and there are political consequences for firing certain individuals that he has to consider, but he has done it. Um, Senator, I'm happy to take as a QFR your specific question about numbers of individuals. I do know we have that. I don't have it on the tip of my tongue. But it, in general sense, President Ghani has relieved, I believe the number is over 30 customs officials in a specific instance where he learned of endemic corruption. Um, and he has created panels within the parliament, both a general parliamentary panel on corruption and a women's parliamentary council on, on corruption that is also empowered to take action. But I will take details as a QFR. Yeah, Ambassador Olson. If I, if I may just add one point, President Ghani has also removed more than 90 generals uh, from uh, the Ministry of Defense roles. Now, that was not necessarily specifically for corruption, uh, but um, the individuals were removed for um, inefficiency and effectiveness. But I think it does help to establish the principle of accountability that, uh, that is so important to anti-corruption efforts. Has anybody gone to jail? There are, there are individuals from Kabul Bank uh, who have, are in jail, yes. Now, the, the whole uh, issue of corruption raises the question, um, what's more of a threat to the long-term stability of Afghanistan? Is it the current inability of the Afghan government to deal with its own internal struggles, uh, i.e. Uh, corruption, or is it ISIS, Al-Qaeda, uh, the other group you mentioned, and or the Taliban. How, how do you see that in terms of the long-term stability? Well, I think that um, uh, there is no question that what preoccupies most Afghans on a day-to-day -day basis and what preoccupies um, uh, the government is the security threat from the insurgency, that is to say, from uh, the Taliban. Uh, um, I think that overall, uh, the Taliban have thrown everything they could at the government uh, for two years now, for two fighting seasons, 2015 and 2016, and they have not succeeded. Um, they did briefly take Kunduz, but they have not taken any provincial capitals um, this year, uh, and the Afghan forces have been um, fighting back uh, very effectively. Uh, given the effectiveness of the Afghan defense forces, I think that the Taliban have resorted to um, outrageous terrorist attacks in the cities, which of course garner enormous um, attention, but those are 
generally speaking, against very soft targets. Um, so I think that the people of Afghanistan are genuinely concerned about, uh, about the insurgency. And I think they would see that as um, the, the first and foremost amongst uh, the threats. It's also one of the reasons that there is such a yearning for peace in Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thanks for your service. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you, and thank you for your testimony. Um, a couple of years ago in the House, uh, uh, myself and another member uh, on the Government Reform Committee uh, looked into some of the contracts that we had um, with Afghanistan. And at that time, uh, a lot of the, a big percentage of the funding that was going were, were contracts, trucking contracts with the Afghans uh, for movement of fuel and uh, supplies to forward operating bases in particular. Um, with a diminished presence there, that uh, requirement has gone down quite a bit, I understand, but is that, uh, there was, that was identified as a, an area of deep concern, I know, at that point. The allegiance of those with whom we were contracting, basically to protect our supplies moving forward and to move those supplies um, was fleeting at best, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, Taliban one day and uh, with us the next, it seemed. Is that still a concern? And how much or what percentage of the uh, funding with regard to defense funding is still going that direction? I know you may not be aware of some of these figures, but uh, can you give me the best estimate you can? Well, um, Senator, I think I, with regard to Department of Defense funding, I would have to uh, take that question and, right. and get back to you because that's obviously the responsibility of my colleagues at the Department of Defense. Um, what I can tell you is, uh, and I was the assistance coordinator at the U.S. Embassy during the time I think you're talking about, and there was a great deal of concern about contracting um, and efforts were made to greatly improve vetting of, um, uh, of the various contracts to make sure that no U.S. funding was falling into the hands of malign actors. Um, as you correctly state, that is, I think, less of an issue now in part because of the diminished size of um, US, uh, U.S. forces. Uh, I would say there continues to be a great emphasis on fuel. Um, and I know that uh, General Nicholson um, has spent uh, a lot of time addressing the question of uh, fuel contracts to ensure uh, that they are uh, completely clean and administered in the best, uh, in a way that doesn't um, encourage any corruption. But of course, I would have to refer you to the Department of Defense for the specifics on those particular, um, those particular contracts. Senator, with your permission, I'll add, in specific response to some of the early issues, the U.S. government developed programs of what we call vetting, as the ambassador alluded to. And I can give you numbers on vetting since 2011. USAID specifically has vetted 7,318 potential partners to, to receive our funding since March of 11. And from that, 300 have been determined ineligible. Now, that may not mean they were criminals, but it means that we found something that made them not eligible to receive our funding. And the amount of money that may have protected is in excess of $670 million. So we took, the, we took the threat of that particular corruption very seriously. And now systemically across the government, and I might add in other countries as well, we are looking at how we examine the backgrounds of the individuals in these organizations with which we work. Right. Well, thank you. The concern was, and this applies, obviously the numbers are bigger on the defense side, but it uh, applies to other contracts as well. The concern at that time was that so much of that funding was actually being used against us 
later. Um, like I said, these were big numbers, huge numbers in terms of these contracts. And, but uh, I'm, I'm pleased that it seems the vetting process has been stepped up because it was quite clear at that point a lot of the money used to acquire weapons and, and uh, to launch attacks was actually U.S. money that had been turned around um, because of uh, insufficient vetting. And I understand you have to deal with unsavory actors here a lot, um, less so now with the diminished presence, but uh, I just hope that we're, we're making sure that, uh, that our funding uh, ends up where we want it to go and not being used against us. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your incredible service. Um, Ambassador Olson, we often use the n number of 8,400 U.S. troops to talk about our presence inside that country, but for any of us that have s spent uh, time there, and of course you well know that that number of U.S.-supported personnel is actually much larger. We obviously have a, a big non-military civilian and contracting footprint. Do you know uh, offhand what the number is of um, U.S.-supported or U.S.-paid-for personnel that are on the ground today in Afghanistan beyond just that number of, uh, of 8,400 troops? Yeah, no, Senator, I do not have a number for the number of contractors who'd be supporting either um, DOD or, or state. I could give you the numbers for uh, the U.S. Embassy. We have about uh, 670 uh, people, Americans, at the, uh, at the U.S. Embassy, uh, in addition to the, uh, you know, the 9,800 who are serving um, with um, uh, the U.S. military. But we would have to get back to you on the total number of contractors. I, I simply raise it because I think we, we're, we use the wrong metric when we try to understand our presence there. We have transferred some fairly significant functions away from U.S. Mm -hmm. troops to private contractors who are doing things that troops used to do there. Uh, and so our footprint is much bigger, and we frankly have a lot more Americans at risk than just that number 84. If I could, if you don't object, yeah. would the order of magnitude be maybe triple the number that we have military just to give an order of magnitude? Uh, Senator, I'm, re I'm really reluctant to guess on the, on this number. I I don't have um, a sense I'm, of the I total apologize. number of contractors. I, but, I would. Uh, we my guess is that, that would be a minimum. Yeah, but, that's my yeah. that's my guess. Um, Ambassador, can can you talk about what you see as the future vision for U.S. military presence in Afghanistan? Whether you see this um, as um, a, a uh, movement towards a day in which there are no U.S. troops, uh, no U.S. military presence, or should we be thinking about Afghanistan more like South Korea, in which we are going to have to have a constant presence there to uh, help underwrite and, uh, and help advise the Afghan military forces? And, and what's your recommendation to the administration on that question? Yes, well, um, I think as we're, as we're thinking about uh, transitions of um, administrations, of course, these are the kinds of questions that will come to the, uh, to the fore. Um, and uh, President Obama, with his decision on keeping 8,400 troops um, in place, uh, wanted to leave um, as much room as possible for his successor to make decisions uh, about um, overall levels uh, of, of U.S. Uh, troops. I think that, you know, I will give you my, my own personal view, 
um, that uh, there is um, a, a essentially uh, two models, I would say, for how we can be looking um, at, the, at the future. Uh, one of them is um, essentially a long war um, in which we do have a long commitment um, of some number of troops, whatever the, that number may be, I think is, is, would be open to uh, debate. Um, but the other option um, is to pursue a political settlement, is to pursue um, reconciliation. Uh, I don't think that that is necessarily something that needs to be done on an immediate time frame, and it certainly needs to be done in accordance with our core principles, and we have established this with regard to reconciliation, that um, any agreement has to, at the end of the day, involve um, the Taliban breaking with al-Qaeda and international terrorism, um, with ceasing violence, and with uh, coming under the Afghan constitution, including the, the respect for minorities and women. So, so I think that, if I may, just the having, um, you know, thinking in terms of future military presence, I think the way we should be thinking about this is that our military um, hardening of the Afghan state puts them in a position to arrive at a political settlement that is, you know, safeguards the investment. So, the so but, th but, that, but that assumes that the Taliban is interested in a political solution. Do you worry that it is just simply not in the DNA of the Taliban to compromise, that we're not talking about a political party, we're talking about a social, cultural, and religious movement that, that may be totally incapable of doing what we're asking them to do, which is essentially get one quarter or one half of what they want to power share. This doesn't suggest to me the kind of organization that really, in the end, is capable of entering into a political settlement. And if that's the case, then a strategy which assumes that eventually they'll fold in is one that uh, you know will 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 never turn out the way we want it to. Uh, if I may, uh, Senator, I I think that's an excellent question, and I think we don't know uh, the answer to the question. I mean, I would say that as a diplomat, one this is something, this is a proposition that we would need to test whether the Taliban are prepared uh, to come to the table um, and uh, to talk. What I would say is that there is an enormous war weariness in Afghanistan on both sides. Um, and I think that is, that is very evident. Um, it is evident amongst the Afghan people who are, I think, uh, absolutely ready for a peace settlement and for reconciliation. And if that widespread desire can be translated um, into uh, attitudes on the part of the Taliban that can be changed. I think I, I think there may be some ground, but it is a, it is a proposition that has to be tested, sir. Thank you. Um, our staff leaned up and said they felt the number was probably between eighty to a hundred thousand. But if you would uh, of additional uh, security uh, of contractors, if you would get back with us with that number, would be good. In, in saying that, I want to say, uh, personally, I lobbied the White House to keep the numbers of troops that we had there. Um, I'm glad the president, uh, you know, came up with a number that I think will uh, keep stability there. I appreciated the additional authorities that were given to the military to give close air support to uh, to the Afghan military when necessary. I appreciated the the, the authorities to go against Al Qaeda that didn't exist uh, a year or so ago. So I don't want any of the questions that I'm asking to indicate anything other than my support for those decisions that have been made. I think Ghani. 
um, is a, generally a good man and like all of us has flaws, but I'm glad that we have someone who does care about corruption and, you know, he is more of a technocrat and, and certainly understands the ways of the world and the IMF and other places. And I think uh, Abdullah has uh, significant political skills uh, as a human being and just uh, interrelationship uh, kinds of skills. That said, um, I, again, I want to go back to some of the questions I asked uh, Mr. Mr. Sampler earlier. I mean, regardless of political reconciliation, uh, and I share some of the concerns that Senator Murphy just laid out, I mean, once we created this Afghan military and, and Afghan police, um, we knew that for ad infinitum, we were going to be pouring billions and billions of dollars, even with political reconciliation occurring. I mean, that's not, we have a country, as you've mentioned, that's one of the poorest in the world. You know, there's all this utopic discussion about the minerals they have in the ground, which has been, you know, utopia for decades. It's, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, I know. And I just think it's better for the American people for us to understand that once you undertake an effort like this, um, you're talking billions and billions and billions and billions of U.S. dollars every single year. And so I would get back to, again, somebody who I think is a true patriot, uh, Mr. Sampler, and just as we learn about this, and obviously it's affecting the American people when they see Afghanistan, when they see um, Iraq, and you know, there's obviously a change of thinking in our country among the American people. Those of us who are policymakers uh, obviously want to always continue to pursue our national interests, but we understand the country's changing. Uh, or at least has for a while, what would you, how, how would you assess when we go into to a place like Afghanistan and we determine what we're going to do? Uh, George Bush 41, President Bush 41, determined when he went in, in in Desert Storm that there was a limited mission, and once that was accomplished, he stepped back out. Uh, Bush 43 determined that mission to be something very different in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you're seeing on the ground the effort that it takes for this transformation, and certainly good things have occurred. But how should we begin to think in a more sophisticated way on the front end uh, about these types of engagements based on what you've learned over the last 14 or 15 years? Senator, again, thank you for the question. Um, the observation I would make, and, and I make it coming from a special forces background, is it is much cheaper and much better and much more humane to prevent insurgencies than it is to go in and try and clean them up. In Afghanistan, one of the reasons I am such an ardent supporter for continuing our engagement is we have seen firsthand the consequences of walking away from this region. Uh, it was the Taliban and it was 30 years of civil war and it spawned a breeding ground for Al-Qaeda which, which, uh, from which they attacked the United States. So I, I'm an ardent supporter of per pursuing stability in places like Afghanistan. One of the things I've pledged the agency to continue to work on with them is what should we have learned about how we do this the next time around, wherever it might be in the world. As an agency and as an interagency, what must we be better at to make sure that we are as prepared as we can be to bring all the instruments of national power to bear to make sure we find the most economical and the most effective ways to do this. But I really appreciate your observation with respect to the time that's required. You may be able to go into Afghanistan as we did in 2001 and topple the government there very quickly. 
but you cannot rebuild the state in an equally quick period of time. And there's a, there's a further confusion in some of the community of interest that if you double the amount of money you spend, you will therefore double the rate of change in the host national government. And, and I appreciate, too, the growing recognition that that's just not true. So I guess I would argue for a comprehensive whole-of-government approach that really does use all the instruments of our national power. And then the strategic patience, as you've indicated, to be willing to stay the course and make sure that the changes we make are permanent. I worked in Bosnia in 1995 and six when, when Richard Holbrook uh, brokered that peace agreement. And at the time, we were very pessimistic. And Bosnia certainly is not covering itself in glory. The Balkans is a tough place to live and work still. But it is a governed space, and it is getting better. And the people there live better lives now than they did in 1993. If that's all we can achieve in Afghanistan, that might be enough for the short run. But I think we need to stay the course to make sure that the gains Afghans have made and the governance that they're beginning to provide is permanent and not reversible. I'm going to turn to Senator Shaheen. I know I came from another committee meeting. I, I just will make the observation that I, I think part of entering these conflicts that we know are going to go on for decades, what we've done in our country is, uh, is do so uh, and, and not pay for it. I mean, what we've really done is made sure that future generations will pay for this, which to me is inherently immoral. Um, and it seems to me on the front end of these, a decision needs to be made if we know we're going to be there spending $10 billion a year for ad infinitum, that we also create some way through cuts in other government services, which obviously the American people would pay attention to, or in some other ways, uh, revenues um, pay for these undertakings because we're not just committing to something for a long time uh, each year. Uh, most of these resources are being piled on the back of our young people that uh, down the road are going to pay, pay the price, not us, but people down the road. With that, Senator Sheen. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and I would agree. I think you point out that what we have done is we've um, let the American people think that we can um, do these kinds of um, interventions without any cost to America. And that is, that is a dangerous uh, precedent to set. Um, but I, I want to begin by thanking you, Ambassador Olson and Mr. Sampler, for your service um, in Afghanistan and to the country. And um, wish you well in whatever you decide, whatever you're doing next. I have really two questions. My first is a very specific one. Um, as I know you both know, without any action from Congress to authorize additional visas for Afghan, for the Afghan Special Immigrant Visa Program, um, not only will that program expire, but thousands of Afghans who have provided valuable service to um, our embassy there, to our men and women who have served, will be denied um, access to this country and be exposed themselves and their families to great danger. Many of them already are. So I, I want to ask both of you if you could talk about how important it is for Congress to take action to extend the SIV program for Afghans who are still in the pipeline and to talk about what a difference that has made to, um, to our mission there on the ground. So Ambassador Olson, do you want to begin? Yes. Uh, thank you, Senator, for your question. Um, let me say that um, the State Department is uh, fully committed 
uh, to uh, the special immigrant visa program. We consider it, uh, frankly, a moral responsibility uh, to our employees who have been prepared uh, to put their lives um, at risk uh, by their uh, association um, with us. Um, and um, uh, Senator, you are indeed uh, correct um, that without um, an infusion of uh, visa numbers, um, we will uh, very shortly uh, be exhausting the ability to um, issue uh, visas, um, whether it's to uh, uh, individuals who served um, with our armed forces um, or um, our locally engaged staff uh, at, the, uh, at the U.S. mission. Um, so um, I wouldn't offer any, any specific commentary on the various pieces of legislation that are uh, currently um, under consideration, except to note that we do believe uh, the need I is real and uh, would encourage uh, the Senate and the House to act on it. Mr. Sampler, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, ma'am. I'll endorse the ambassador's observation. I will say that I look forward to a day when the Afghans don't feel the need to flee Afghanistan. Absolutely. The, the brain drain that this creates among the not just the interpreters, but the, the professional staff at our embassy who leave after serving just two years and are now in the United States um, is significant. I mean, it has been discussed in the government of Afghanistan that, you know, as soon as we can reverse the security concerns and give these people a sense of confidence that they can stay, that will, I think, be a significant success. But in the short run, I very much support the SIV program. I have colleagues who have worked with and for me in Afghanistan who are either in the United States now or hope to be because of the SIV program. And so I very much appreciate that Congress is willing to offer this and willingness to extend it. Well, thank you both, and I do appreciate the efforts of the State Department to make sure that this program has worked and worked more expeditiously to help those who are in, in real danger. And it's disappointing to me that we've had a few um, people in the Senate and in the House who have blocked something that has been very important to our efforts um, on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, my second question is really a much broader one. And, um, you know, what, just reading and listening to media reports in the last months um, about discord between President Ghani and CEO Abdullah, about um, Taliban incursions into Helmand, into Nangarhar provinces, about um, the recent very high profile death of uh, one of the police chiefs who, at least from all news reports, was um, not corrupt and who was working hard to address the dangers of the Taliban. It's hard to read all of those reports and have a rosy view of uh, the good work that has gone on in Afghanistan, and I appreciate both of you talking about progress that has been made, but it does raise concerns about what the future holds, and so I, I wonder if, if you could talk about how we should view the future given some of the reports of what we're seeing. Yes, well, thank you, Senator. Um, I, I, I agree with you that it's important not to be rosy-eyed on this, but I do think um, that in particular the security um, situation is not quite as um, as dire as it is sometimes presented um, uh, with through uh, uh, through media reports. 
Um, and I'm not saying that to be critical of, of the media, but it's just simply the nature of the, of the news cycles. The fact is that the Taliban for the last two years has thrown everything it had uh, against the Afghan forces. And with the exception of uh, the brief fall of Kunduz last fall, uh, the Afghan forces um, have held. Uh, in fact, under General Nicholson's leadership, they have taken much more offensive actions um, and are much more mobile um, and um, less tied to checkpoints. Many of the incidents that you're describing are actually the overrunning of, of checkpoints. For instance, um, in Aruzgan province recently, um, there were reports that uh, the capital Tarankot had fallen. That wasn't true. What had happened is certain checkpoints on the outskirts of Tarankot, which is a town up in the hills and surrounded by narrow roads leading in, had fallen uh, to, uh, to the Taliban. Um, but the city itself was never actually um, under any kind of uh, direct threat. Um, that said, the fighting has been serious, um, especially in Helmand um, and, in parts of, and in parts of the north. Uh, but again, um, the key parts of Helmand, uh, that is to say the populated districts, the capital, the areas around the ring road, uh, have continued to hold. And I think that the Taliban do control certain parts of, of Afghanistan that is indisputable, but what they control are primarily uh, rural areas uh, with very low population densities um, and remote areas. Uh, these are not population centers. If you look at uh, the, um, the, uh, the proportion of the country that the Taliban um, holds in terms of population, it's really not very, very significant. Um, and this is, of course, given that the five major cities of Afghanistan have, uh, have over the course of the past 15 years, become huge um, cities in Afghan standards. Kabul probably being two to five million people when it was a, traditionally a city of 200,000. So I, I don't want to be overly optimistic, but I do think that um, the Afghan forces um, are holding, uh, despite some, uh, some real casualties. Um, and with our continued support, um, we believe that they will be able to um, withstand um, whatever the Taliban has been throwing against them. On the question of the government of national unity, uh, it, is, um, it is a challenge. This is not a country that has a tradition of coalition government um, ever. Uh, it has a long tradition, frankly, of very authoritarian, centralized, one-person rule. Um, and so there are you know, challenges to making, uh, the, making the government of national unity work. Um, and um, there are some uh, recurrent challenges that have come up uh, recently, of, of, of which I'm sure you're aware. Our sense is that both uh, President Ghani and Dr. Abdullah, uh, with whom I have, I've been out to Kabul twice within the past month, uh, I've met with both of them repeatedly. Uh, my sense is they both recognize the importance of unity, of inclusive government. Um, there are some tough political issues, frankly, uh, that d divide them, uh, but we are working with them to continue to uh, keep the process on track. Can I ask a follow-up? Sure. Um, you talked about the significant losses to the Afghan forces, and I have 
heard that they have lost thousands of people. And so how much is this affecting their ability to continue to recruit and, um, and to replace all of those people who have been lost? Well, um, yeah, Senator, I don't, I don't mean to duck the question, but it would probably be a question that would need to be referred to my DOD colleagues. I think they would probably have um, you know, the precise numbers on that. Uh, my sense from having been out there and from having talked uh, repeatedly to uh, General Nicholson and others um, is that while the casualties um, are uh, severe, first of all, they're, they're not as significant as the casualties that the Taliban are taking. I mean, I think that's an important point to remember, uh, that the Taliban casualties are particularly um, severe. Um, and uh, so far, I think it is safe to say that, you know, the um, the recruitment efforts um, have not been hampered, and there are some important advantages that the Afghan forces have right now, um, particularly the use of um, air power, uh, which gives them a big advantage and a morale boost over, um, uh, over uh, the Taliban. Uh, the Afghans now are flying A-29 Super Chukinos. Uh, uh, the Afghan Air Force is actually conducting um, airstrikes, and of course we've provided uh, helicopters, MD-530s, uh, which are being used um, quite effectively. And I think that that has a really important um, uh, effect on the battlefield because, of course, that means that the, um, their enemy cannot mass, um, and I think it also is a great boost uh, to the morale. Okay, so I have a State Department question for you. Do we expect President Ghani to call parliamentary elections? Uh, the timing of elections will have to be up to um, the Afghan government uh, to, uh, to decide. Um, we think what's really important in the near term is that the government of Afghanistan uh, agree on what electoral reforms are absolutely necessary to conduct um, elections um, as soon as um, as possible, uh, because I think there's a widespread consensus that um, after uh, the last uh, after the 2014 election, uh, that reforms are necessary. There are issues that are under consideration right now: consideration of uh, electronic ID cards, um, of uh, the question of constituencies, um, and naturally, constituencies raises. Um, uh, questions of redistricting, which is as controversial in Afghanistan as it is in the United States. Uh, so these are important issues that they are going to have to get, get through. But we think the important thing is for them to um, actually come up with a reform package and agree on it. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I will say, in, in reference to one of your questions, there there is a 30% turnover rate in the military each year. So um, the special forces, I think, have done an outstanding job at performing, but the the rest of the regular uh, Afghan military uh, does have significant uh, um, significant turnover. And, and, and as far as the gains that uh, have been made, I mean, a big part of that has been um, with the close air support that we've been able to give too. Is that correct? And I know that. Yes, that is correct, sir. Of course, I'm. I'm well outside my lane uh, in terms of offering military You're only there because appreciation the, uh, our civilian military leaders uh, just can't, couldn't get it together, uh, unfortunately. Um, but uh, 
That is true, what I just said, right? Yeah, yes, sir. Um, uh, there, um, uh, General Nicholson, of course, has um, under his uh, authorities uh, the ability to um, provide air support uh, to um, uh, if to carry out a strategic effect, um, and he has been using those um, authorities quite effectively. And those are new authorities. That is correct, sir. And when when do we expect the the Afghans themselves? I know that they are uh, gaining ground as it relates to 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 their air service, but when will we expect they can totally displace us, if you will, uh, on those types of activities? Um, sir, I would really think that I couldn't answer that question. That would be one for my um, my Air Force colleagues um, who are working this issue directly, but we'll be happy to take it back and try to get you an answer. Would it be your observation that um, in the event the Loya Jirga were to take up the issue of having a CEO and a president uh, today, that it's likely they would vote that down? Um, well, the, the question of Aloya Jirga um, is a little bit of a complicated one because, of course, the political agreement calls for one, but it called for a constitutional Aloya Jirga, which would require first holding parliamentary um, elections. Um, and as um, I was discussing with Senator Shaheen, there's um, challenges to carrying out parliamentary elections, and that's why they haven't taken place so far and why the Aloya Jirga um, has not come about. Um, uh, and, and, and I just so I want to understand. I, my understanding was that possibly one of the reasons we're not going ahead with the parliamentary piece is that we know that to the extent it was constituted, the Lloyd Jirga, that in fact uh, this this shotgun marriage that we created uh, would not exist and would fall apart. So it's 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 the sequence that you outlined and not concerns about what my, what the aftermath might be. Um, yes, sir. Well, first of all, I mean, these are these are Afghan decisions about whether or not to convene a, 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 a yeah, a lawyer jirga. Um, I, I don't I don't think um, that uh, the calculation that um, this would not um, that, that this would proceed one way or the other was the factor. I think it was simply the difficulty of um, reaching consensus on the electoral reforms and therefore agreeing on the electoral date that actually prevented um, the, the convening of a, uh, of a lawyer jirga. And it's important to emphasize I'm talking about a constitutional lawyer jirga. There also is the option of a traditional lawyer jirga, which yep. is um, much um, less uh, uh, predictable in terms of its right. um, possible outcomes. And I understand President Karzai is playing a nefarious role in, 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 in these issues. Is that correct? Um, well, uh, President, President Karzai uh, has um, uh, occasionally signaled uh, that he, uh, well, he has signaled that he would favor um, a traditional Loya Jirga. Uh, I think that uh, we would have concerns uh, about a, uh, a traditional Loya Jirga, but at the end of the day, this is up to the Afghans to yeah. decide. Just one last question. I can tell Senator Cardin wants to close with some other comments and questions. So the role that you play is, is first of all, you being in this post is going to end after many, many years of distinguished service, which we're all grateful for. But it does seem to me that now, you know, the whole notion of this uh, AFPAC, if you will, and this, uh, the, 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 
the scenario that we envisioned at the time is very different today. Um, I'd love to. I'd love for you, if you would, on on your way out the door, to to talk about the strengths of that of having a person in this position and some of the complexities. Again, I would think that in some ways it breeds distrust by both countries uh, for someone in your position or could. I just wondered if you might make some observations, knowing that that others will decide whether um, this position continues. Well, thank you, Senator, for giving me the chance to, to address this. It's, um, it's an important issue. Uh, I do think uh, having um, an office uh, like mine that is um, robustly uh, resourced and staffed and able to uh, deal with um, some of the highest priority issues in our, in our foreign policy on a daily basis uh, makes um, a good deal of sense. Um, I, just to give you some examples, uh, I, in some ways, am an equivalent to an assistant secretary of state, um, but I, I only focus on uh, two countries. But this allows me to focus much more intensively. As I mentioned, I have been out in Kabul twice in the last month um, in the uh, nine months or so that I have been um, uh, in this job, I have been out on a monthly basis almost uh, to Kabul um, and uh, Islamabad. And so that is a level of attention that I think um, an ordinary assistant secretary of state would probably not be able to uh, attach to one um, uh, you know, one or two countries. But I have to say um, that there are challenges uh, to the structure as well. The structure, the challenge I think um, uh, that we all uh, come up against is the fact uh, that uh, Pakistan in some ways, when it views itself, um, sees um, itself much more um, uh, in terms of its relationship with India. Uh, and the fact um, that uh, India and Pakistan are in the current structure in separate um, uh, uh, bureaucratic domains uh, can sometimes be a bit of a, a challenge. But let me, let me just say that I work extremely closely um, and with great respect for my colleague uh, Nisha Biswal and we have made um, significant efforts uh, to um, to make sure that that seam is not uh, uh, not problematic, but I think that is a, a serious concern. Senator Cardin. Well, I'm going to follow up on Islamabad and Pakistan. Um, can you just share with us how helpful Pakistan is being in getting the Taliban involved in Afghanistan in the peace process, and particularly how they're inconsistent? I'm being generous right now position in regards to the Akhani network uh, is impacting the ability to have the peace, uh, a meaningful peace process in Afghanistan? Yes, thank you, Senator. Well, uh, first of all, I, I continue to believe that Pakistan is at a strategic crossroads. Um, and it can choose either to act against the extremists uh, who threaten uh, who have a, a safe haven on its territory and threaten its neighbors, or it can continue to ignore this problem. If it chooses the former course of action, cracking down on the terrorists, it will build regional stability, enhance its uh, relations with its neighbors, and with the United States. If it chooses the latter, it will uh, face, it seems to me, increasing isolation and estrangement from Excuse the international me, have they, made, have they made this choice 
and we've been talking about this for for a considerable period of time and at least it, it seems like again I'm going to be somewhat kind on this there seem to be taking both paths at the present time uh, but many here believe they have already made their decision that they won't go after Haqqani and maybe even allow them to continue to operate for whatever reasons. So they have chosen, in many respects, not to go after all terrorist activities. If you talk to the Indians, they'll tell you the same thing is true in regards to the, uh, the networks against India, terrorist organizations against India that are, are supported uh, at least by um, their presence in Pakistan. So I guess my question is, is the jury still out on Pakistan? If it is, how do we influence and make sure they make the right decision? Well, I think that uh, Pakistan has um, taken some actions uh, against uh, the Taliban. I mean, in the past few months, they have been, uh, first of all, they did uh, clean out North Waziristan, which was um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, something that we had wanted for many years, including closing down uh, is that I, I agree with that, but is that translating into cooperation to get the Taliban into the peace process? Well, with regard to the peace process, I think it's safe to say that uh, that uh, Pakistan made uh, serious efforts uh, to bring uh, to try to bring the Taliban to the table. Um, I mean, we know that through a variety of means, uh, but at the end of the day, the Taliban uh, did not uh, take up the offer to come to uh, come to the table. Um, and I think that's um, I think that's unfortunate um, and uh, and regrettable. Um, we continue to urge uh, Pakistan uh, to take uh, robust action uh, against uh, the Haqqani and against uh, the Taliban. Um, and uh, I think there are indications that they have taken some actions, but um, I, I don't think it would be fair to say that those actions have been definitive? Well, um, obviously, we've, we've, this conversation's been going on for a long time, and it, it just looks like when we put a major spotlight on it, we get some help, and then at times for either their strategic reasons or political reasons, Pakistan seems to go in the wrong direction. So. Um, it's a matter that uh, it not only has a direct impact on Pakistan, and truly it does, but also, of course, on their neighbors. Let me just ask one, one additional question on human rights. Uh, th there are many human rights activists in Afghanistan that think that the United States has not been strong enough uh, with uh, the human rights monitoring in Afghanistan. Uh, I would just make that observation again, as I did with corruption, where we had a good discussion here today. It's critically important that the United States prioritize the human rights progress at every opportunity we can. We have a, we're a major player in Afghanistan and that uh, we must have accountability if we're gonna be able to continue this to, we hope, a successful conclusion. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Did either one of you, since uh, you may not have the microphone or one of these hearings again, is there anything that you'd like to say uh, before we adjourn? Senator, it's just been an honor. I've appeared several times, and each time I'm continually impressed with the value of our government 
and how we do things. And it really does encourage me to watch other governments where I get the opportunity to work that look up to us. And so I very much appreciate the hearing today and the other opportunities you've given me to testify. Right. Yes. Can, I, can I come back, um, uh, uh, Chairman? Um, I did want to make one additional point to um, Mr. Cardin's point. Um, I think that there has been uh, a subtle shift um, in the way Pakistan is approaching uh, the question of the Haqqanis uh, and the Taliban in their conversations with us. And we have, I have had many, many conversations. I was formerly ambassador to Pakistan and I probably met with General Raheel 50 times to discuss um, this particular issue. Um, but I think that what has happened is that there is um, less of an emphasis on the strategic dimension that you alluded to. And I think there is a greater concern about taking on another fight when they already have a domestic terrorism issue that are, they are grappling with. To, so to some extent, I think this is a question of capacity uh, for um, the, um, the Pakistanis uh, to deal with. Um, not 100%. Um, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't suggest that there aren't some people who do favor uh, the Taliban for strategic reasons. But I think it is, um, uh, in many ways, from the perspective of the uh, military establishment, simply being um, having too many, uh, too many things they have to deal with at once. And I think that we um, are, uh, uh, we have the sense that we are making progress, slow, um, uh, baby step progress in all of these areas. Uh, but again, let me let me join with. Um, uh, with my colleague Larry and thanking you for giving us the opportunity uh, to be here today and to thank you for your support and cooperation. Thank you. If I could follow up on that, I, you and I have had conversations about the, the Akani network and I mean, w we know that at roadblocks they give them get out of jail free cards, so they provide health care. I mean, the relationship is very cozy and, and, um, and, and we understand, we know that, you know, the leadership of Pakistan knows generally speaking, where they reside. They've moved in, in some cases, to suburban areas of Pakistan out of the Fata area. So, I mean, there's, there's, it's a problem that we all understand. We, you know, held the subsidies, if you will, on buying fighter jets to Pakistan. We've, you know, we see the clips each day and know that that's been widely reported both in Pakistan and India. But what those just in all candor, I mean, you know, you disagree with that effort, I know, and, and I appreciate that, um, although I haven't heard much from the State Department since. Um, what, uh, what, what, what kind of effect does that have internally <clears throat> on Pakistan's calculations when they see that, you know, support is diminishing because of their lack of action? Well, I think that there is a great deal of concern uh, about what, what they see uh, as um, uh, a, a downward slope uh, in the relationship uh, with the United States. Um, I think uh, that uh, one, of the, one of the challenges here is uh, very candidly, uh, Senator, that, that, that Pakistan is a very compartmentalized society and has a very compartmentalized government. 
Um, I think that most Pakistanis genuinely believe that their uh, country is a victim of terrorism and has been engaged in a long-standing um, uh, battle with terrorism for which we are unappreciative. Um, that's not entirely true, uh, but it's um, uh, the issue of those um, uh, groups that uh, threaten their neighbors, um, which quite frankly they have, uh, the best one can say is that they have not uh, pursued them with the same degree of firmness that they have pursued those that, uh, that threaten them domestically. And one could give a more negative interpretation, as you say. Well, look, I, I you know, I would, I'd say on the compartmentalization, uh, you know, the big compartment is the military and the intelligence service, and the small department is the civilian leadership. And, and uh, you know, I'd make another observation that, you know, when I first got here a decade ago, nine and a half years ago, our relationship with Pakistan was very transactional. And we tried to move through a period of time that uh, where it was more whole, and Kerry Luger was put in place. And I think we've reverted back over time because of disappointments uh, to a very transactional relationship. And and I think it is unhealthy at present. And it seems to me that Pakistan has figured out a way to use their uh, potential bad behavior as a way to get more U.S. resources. Um, our concerns about nuclear weapons on mobile launchers, our concerns about uh, just what they're doing in some ways has driven us to want to be more involved. And uh, I do think, and I look forward to debriefing you as time goes on, but I do think we, we need to be thinking about these things in a, in a much different way. We thank you both for your service, and even though you'll be gone from uh, government uh, today, hopefully Bill will answer the QFRs that will come through Monday afternoon. It'll be his first test. Uh, we welcome him. We thank you. I do hope you'll write a book. I mean that sincerely. I really do hope you'll write a book that will help us think about these. And Ambassador Olson, uh, again, thank you for many, many years of distinguished service. I look forward to seeing you again. Meetings adjourned.